All right, Nicole Livingston, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks very much, Hawkey. I have to begin by telling you that it's just a backdrop. I am not musical in any way, shape or form. I couldn't <laughs> tell. There's, there's guitars all around you. What's going on back there? Yeah, I know. My husband's musical. Um, he clearly didn't do a sport like swimming, so he had more time to learn something else. That's awesome. Um, but I get to reap the rewards now because he's actually, he's actually really good. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, there's a, there's a lot to talk about, nothing to talk about. But um, I don't, uh, I'll tell you this, I don't do any research for these things. I just kind of just get on with people that I'm interested in and I just chat. And, and what I wanted to do with you actually is because you're one of my favorite um, commentators and interviewers of all time, I have a lot of footage of, of us uh, talking when I was a swimmer and you asking me questions. I want to ask you questions, but I want you to ask me questions too, because I found throughout this process of this podcasting thing, people have said to me, Brett, why don't you talk more? Why don't, why don't you ask questions? And um, so I've never really had somebody that I've really wanted to ask me questions. So now I, I do, I have someone that I respect. And so it's like, well, why don't we just ask each other some questions? So. Thanks. Thanks for dropping that on me. I'll do yeah. my best. Yeah, I I'm a little out of practice these days. I'm, I'm not doing so much uh, media at the moment. Although I will tell you that I am slated to do Tokyo 2021 for Olympic broadcast. Oh, you are? That's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. I'm excited about You're that. You're so well. be, freaking good at it. I think that'll be my ninth Olympics, um, which makes me feel really old. That's awesome. So who are you doing it with? So Olympic Broadcast Service. So they actually do um, the broadcast for the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, so if a country doesn't have their own commentators, then it picks up the host broadcast. Uh, and in fact, the last two Olympic Games, 2016 and 2012, uh, in America, we uh, our commentary was actually NBC's commentary for online. Mm. Um, so you didn't get to hear Rowdy and that team. You got to hear myself and, and the commentary team. And in 2012, it was a man by the name of Bruce McAvaney that I called with. Yeah. Uh, I know you know who he is, but for those that um, aren't familiar with Bruce McAvaney, do yourself a favour and Google him. He is just the most incredible commentator ever. Uh, and he had done every Olympic game since 1984. And although he was committed to commentate in Australian football, um, horse racing, all these other sports that he does, um, he broke away from doing all of that for 10 days to come across and call the swimming so that his unbroken record at the Olympics um, was still intact. And it was my bucket list to commentate with him. So it was just incredible. Really? Well, listen, you're amazing at it. And, and I don't just say that lightly. I mean, you truly are amazing at it. How did you get good at it? Like, was it just a natural thing or did you have to work at it? Um, I got thrown in absolutely at the deep end. So when I was still swimming, I, uh, I knew that, you know, my swimming career would come to an end. So I didn't want to be one of these athletes that, um, you know, didn't have anything else that they could go to. Uh, you and I both know that so many of our mates I have really struggled post-sport and not knowing what to do and trying to replicate the highs of, of you know, your Olympic experiences. So I wanted to make sure that I was doing uh, not just my training and my racing, but doing something more. So I started working a, a job for Australia Post, so um, the Postal Corporation here, mm. uh, and was doing that between 92 and 96. And then I got word that uh, one of the broadcasters here in Australia, Channel 9, was looking for a female commentator for surf lifesaving. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I threw my hand up to, to do... Um, just a screen test with them. Uh, and I did a screen test with a man by the name of Daryl Eastlake, who um, mm. was a huge personality. He's no longer alive, but a huge personality. 
uh, and was very, very kind to me. Um, so I did that screen test and um, they offered me a position of um, expert commentator with Surf Lifesaver. Now I grew up in Melbourne and we've got a we've got a bay. We don't really have surf. And they actually asked me if I was involved in surf lifesaving. And I was involved in a Royal Lifesaving Club, which was more about um, you know, doing side trungeon stroke, side stroke and um, you know, dragging Annie the, the CPR dummy up and down the pool. And I just said to them, Yeah, I, I I've done lifesaving not really expanding on that. Sometimes you've got to BS a little to get yourself mm. through the door yeah. to prove that you can do it. So um, that was kind of the start and it was baptism of fire. You just, um, I mean, I did have some training once I started hosting national programs for them. Mm. Uh, they um, had a voice coach come in. They had, um, you know, elocution lessons so that I mm. was making sure that I was enunciating correctly. Um, so I'm a nightmare parent because I'm always saying to my kids, now listen, can you just actually separate your words? Make sure you, <laughs> you know, say the last letters of every word that you're saying. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's how it started. That's, that's amazing. But, but you've clearly got a talent for it as well. Did you know you were pretty good at it uh, after a while? Um, oh, I mean, I think in your introduction, when you said that so many people have said to you, you know, Brett, why don't you talk about what you do? Yeah. I reckon swimming and, and all of my swimming friends are the same. Swimming's the one sport where the athletes are generally really humble. Um, they do what they do and they don't really like to spend a lot of time talking about it or bragging about it. Yeah. Um, so for you to ask me a question like, you know, did you know you were good at it or, you know, how did you get good at it? I don't really think about that. Um, what I think about is the Olympic, um, the Olympic competition or any competition that I'm commentating on, I actually want to be um, the conduit for the athletes and their performances. So it's never about me. It's always about highlighting what they're doing or what their struggles are, knowing the backstory, and then trying to educate a viewing audience on the sport that I love. So being able to see what we all see, if you're a swimmer, you know, being able to see the little nuances on, you know, technique or even just personal uh, personal human endeavour to be able to actually facilitate that in a way that people understand. So that was sort of always what I was trying to achieve. Well, I'm glad you said that because you did achieve that. And, and that's, that's why I connected with you because I felt like you did something different than other people did. And that, and the way that you just described that was exactly why I felt like I connected with you. When I would walk to you to do an interview, I felt like here's somebody who has taken the time to understand me and get to know me, get to know my my personal life a little bit, you know, you knew my family, you knew my kids, you would mention that in interviews and that meant something to me. And, and maybe I didn't tell you that at the time, but like looking back on it, I'm like, man, like that, I wanted to talk to you because I felt like you cared, you know? But it was also about me facilitating your moment, your moment to be able to articulate what you're going through to shine. Um, yeah. And that, Again, that was always what it was about. Uh, it, it helped me do my job well to be able to have conversations with you guys on pool deck and um, to be able to speak to coaches about how you guys were going and, and then um, take that into commentary. Um, now, I do know you're a proud father of three girls, which is why I've worn this shirt for you today. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about that shirt real quick. And then, <laughs> and then I want you to ask me a question because we did yeah, say yeah, it yeah. before. So tell me about the shirt. What's going on here? Uh, um, so... I said to you before, I'm I'm not that practiced at uh, asking questions these days. I'm not doing too much work in, in media these days. Uh, in fact, my job is um, with Australian football, so Australian rules football, otherwise known as the AFL. 
Uh, I'm actually head of women's football for them and I've been there for three years. Uh, and uh, four years ago, a league by the name of AFLW started. So um, this is a sport that has been just a male-dominated, male-only sport, a little like the Olympic Games of 1896, mm. uh, where it was only about male um, pursuit of excellence. Uh, so in 2017, the AFL uh, launched AFLW and we now have um, over half a million, close to 600,000 women and girls playing Australian football in this country. So wow. um, I'm pretty proud of, of not just the um, ability for girls to be able to have freedom of choice to play a sport that they love, something that you and I were able to do as kids, but also the fact that, um, you know, it's changing the face of sporting clubs around Australia. So, um, you know, it used to be uh, a male-dominated last bastion of, of male expression. And now mm. women are at the selectors' tables, you know, um, women are on the committees. There are women that are presidents of local footy clubs. So um, it really has changed uh, a woman's place in society and our nation. So it's pretty cool. Well, it doesn't surprise me at all that you're heading up that and and, and it's successful so that 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 is incredible and i and i want to get into that a little bit in terms of how our um careers overlap just for one meet you know so we'll we'll talk about that in a sec but ask yeah, me yeah. something i'll give you the chance no i mean the thing for me in in thinking about reflecting about your career and you know that i've got two two children twins mm. we've both uh, parents of twins, but I've got twins that are finishing their final year of school and they're investigating coming across to the States and going to college and one plays baseball, one swims. Uh, I got one that's a swimmer. Yeah. Um, but, but I think about and I reflect on your career and, you know, when we were swimming, we were always told, don't go to America, don't go to US college, it will ruin your career. Um, but you were a bit of a trailblazer in that sense. I think about you, I think about Adam Pine, who also, mm. he went, I think, to the University of Nebraska. Yep. Tell me about actually making the choice that you did to come across to, to Auburn uh, and to spend the time swimming there in an era that didn't really support Australian swimmers going across there. It was a bit of a, a death knell or death nail to, to Australian swimmers really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. And, and honestly, there was a lot of um, negativity surrounding it. Like you said, there was, there was a lot of pushback from Australia. It was, there was always this anti kind of, you know, go to America and you're going to disappear and you'll never be seen again kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, stay here and be successful. And, and I did, I did that. I, I stayed for three years after high school and, um, and I've told many people this, I worked for Pizza Hut for three years and I delivered pizzas and, and I drove, I went to practice in the afternoon and I drove all night and then I'd sleep and I'd go to practice in the morning and then I'd sleep during the day. And, and that's what I did for three years after high school. And my dad was like wringing my neck. He was like, Brett, like get a real job. And I'm like, dad, I want to be a swimmer. I want to be a swimmer. Mm -hmm. So I had this belief from Australian swimming, like you've got to do it this way. You got to stay in Australia and you got to, and this is the way to do it. Well, then I went to the Olympic trials in 96 at the age of 23 years out of high school, delivering pizzas for three years. And I missed the Olympic team by three and hundreds. And I actually, I actually qualified. Let me get this straight. I qualified for the Olympics. I finished six in the hundred freestyle and within the qualifying standards for the Australian team, you had to finish six in the hundred freestyle. So I finished within the qualifying standards, but I finished third in the 50 freestyle mm -hmm. by three one hundredths of a second. And Don Talbot chose not to take me. So I thought to myself, well, if I put in all this work and, and I'm at the discretion of just some person who decides whether mm -hmm. they want to take me or not, I was like, F this. I'm, I'm at, I, like, I'm out of here. You know, like this whole belief that this is the way to do it. I was just, I was burned by it. 
And so mm. I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something for me. So I investigated America and they offered me a scholarship. And I thought to myself, here's, here's people that actually want me. Australia doesn't want me. They turn their back on me. I don't make the Olympic team, even when I qualify. So I was like, well, F them, I'm, I'm going to America. So I went to America. And, and for me, it was like, prove everybody back home wrong. Because they always told me that once you go to America, you're, you're done. You'll never be heard of again. You'd go out yeah. there and party. And, and there was all this theory on, you know, what, what, what would happen once you went there. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And, and, and I went there and within three months, I won the national championship in the 50 freestyle. Our team won the national championship for the first time. I was, I was finally part of something. I was part of this great sprint tradition at Auburn University. I was being coached by David Marsh, who's one of the greatest coaches in history. Like I just hit the jackpot. And I thought to myself, what was I thinking delivering pizzas for the past three years? I could have been over here doing this. So what was so, the conversation like with Don though? Cause I, you know, I remember in 1990, I think it was 93. I had an offer to go across and, and race uh, in Paris for a team called Clichy or Cliche. Yeah, yeah. And, and Don just said, if you go, you will never make another Australian team again. I'll make sure of that. Yeah. You know, what was that conversation like with Don? Cause he was a bit of a tyrant at that time. For sure. And that's what they were telling me. They were like, you'll never make an Australian team. And I said, well, there's criteria. And if I make the criteria, you can't stop me. And yeah. so for the next, uh, for the next three years from, from 97 to 99, I came back every year after NCAAs and I swam like crap. <laughs> and, and I was like, what, what am I doing? I'd go to America and I'd swim amazing and I'd come home to Australia and I'd give myself a three or four day, you know, turnaround and, and I'd swim terrible and I wouldn't make the Australian team. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I'm just better off swimming in, a, in America and doing what I, you know, getting a degree and, and doing, being successful in America. And maybe I'm just never going to make the Australian team again. And then 99 came around. Obviously the, the Olympics were in Sydney in 2000, my hometown. Mm -hmm. And I just said to David Marsh, look, I've got another a year of college. I understand that. But I've, if I don't go home, I'm not going to make the Australian team. It's not going to happen. So I said, there's a criteria set. I know what it is. If I go home and win the Australian championship, they're not going to deny me. They can't deny me. I don't care what Don yeah. Talbot says. If I win that Australian championship, I'm on that Olympic team. And I told David, I'm leaving. I told Don Talbot, I'm coming back. Good luck trying to stop me. And I, and I just set my mind on making the Olympic team, not, not finishing second, not, tr not just making it. I was going to win the Australian championship and no one was going to stop me. And that was mm -hmm. kind of my mindset. And, and, um, you know, I went back and trained with Chris Feidler. I didn't, I didn't tell Chris Feidler that he didn't want to hear that, you know, but at the time he was this guy that hadn't been beaten in many years. And, and when I went back, I thought to myself, what have I done? Because I'm not, I'm not beating Chris Feidler. He's better than me. You know, mm -hmm. he was better than me in every sense, even when I was training. And um, so I had to figure it out. Uh, I had to figure it out. But, but it was a mental decision that I made to say, I'm making this team under any circumstances. Yeah. Do or die. Did, you, did you make 99 Pan Packs or just straight into 2000? I did not make anything until wow. from 95 when we were on the team together. And I'm going to ask you this question. When, when I made the team in 95 for the World Short Course in Rio, that was, that was our only team together, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I didn't make another team for five years. Not God, that wasn't a good, that, that was not a good team for me to be on to show you. <laughs> I mean, there was probably some things you learned from me, which is, you know, I stood up for myself and my teammates and, and made sure. Well, that's exactly <laughs> sure. what I learned from you. Yeah. Yeah. 
and made sure that, you know, it wasn't a dictatorship. And, um, and you know, one of the things I want to ask you about uh, is your coaching career, and I'll park that for a second. But for yeah. me, um, the coaches that I resonated the most with and that I was most successful with was coaches that actually treated it like a partnership. Mm. Um, and, you know, Don was was a dictator and he was a bit of a tyrant during that period of time and um, had a very short memory. So you'd have a massive blow up with him about something that you thought was an injustice for yourself and the team. And then five minutes later, he was your best friend again, whereas you're yeah. still stewing about the fact that you'd had a, a complete, uh, absolute Barney with him. Um, but that 95 World Short Course team, that, that was probably, I reckon, in 12 years of being on the national team, that was the only trip that I would classi classify myself as a tourist. <laughs> I, I, was, I was just not in good shape. I'd won the Pan Packs that year uh, in 95, um, went 2.11.2 for the 200 back. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know, I must have pulled the ripcord a little and just went on holidays to Brazil. <laughs> It wasn't about your swimming at that point for me. What, what I noticed the most was your leadership. I mean, you were yeah. a true leader. You were totally respected by all the swimmers on the team. And anytime that you spoke, everybody else shut up. And that's what I mm -hmm. noticed. You know, like I said, I, had, I didn't make a team from 95 to 2000. So, you know, when I made 95, I was, I was young. I was like, wow, I finally made the Australian team. It was my first Australian team at 95, you know, World Short Course Championships. It wasn't a huge deal, but for Australia, anytime you made the Australian team, it was a big deal. So I'm fine. I'm a 20-year-old kid. I'm on the team with Nicole Livingston. I think it's the greatest thing of all time. <laughs> and, and you are just the ultimate leader for me. So talk about that in terms of your leadership mm -hmm. skills. Like what, what were you doing at that point in time? Well, I think um, I, th I think the pride in being on the Australian swimming team is something that that I'd always aspired to be involved with. I made my first Australian team in 1985. Mm. I was 13. Um, there was a couple of other 13-year-olds on that senior team as well. Um, Dimity Douglas had just been to the Olympics a year before as as a 14-year-old uh, as well. So it was kind of this generation of young swimmers that were quite precocious and. Um, just thought that they could take on the world. Um, mm. So it was a real environment of you dream it, you work hard, you can do it. Um, and I just remember being on that Australian team in 85 and John Seaman was on that team. And I'd been sitting in my lounge room watching him win Olympic gold against Mikhail Gross, um, you know, seeing him punch the air, do a 360 spin on the lane rope um, after just coming over the top of everybody. And then, you know, flash eight months later and I'm sitting in Canberra watching him train and being on a national team with him. So um, the pride in being part of the Australian swimming team was just immense. Mm. Um, and again, you know, we had some strong leaders, you know, I was on teams with the likes of Lisa Curry Kenny, who, you know, stood up for what she believed in as well. And, and that was the power of the athlete and um, that it shouldn't have been, um, you know, an us and them or, a, you know, a boss and a subordinate. It was, yeah. it was about us being in partnership. So um, that, that was something that I always believed in. And again, I was really lucky to have coaches that, that operated that way. I think about, um, you know, Ralph Richards. I was so lucky to have Ralph who, um, University of Michigan, then assistant coached under um, Jim Councilman. Mm. who was a, a leader from a coaching point of view at, at that period of time. And everything he did with me as a young athlete was about technique and making sure that I was going to be there for the long haul. So to go from 13 on the national team to 25 in the national team, um, to not really have any significant injuries, to be able to stand up and, 
have belief in in the training and and um, the work ethic and the technique that I had and and the race tactics that I had um, was something that Ralph instilled. But then having people like Bill Nelson, Gennady Turetsky, who I learned so much from. Um, so I had these coaches that were in partnership with me, which I think was really important. But I always made sure that um, the pride in the Australian swimming team was there on show. We lost that for a little while, um, but I think. Jaco Baharan's just finished up or is just finishing up as our national coach and Rowan Taylor's taking over. But I reckon in the last four or five years, we've really found that once again with the Australian swim team. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely been a turning point, which has been cool to see. Um, but yeah, I, I want to ask you about 2000 though, in, yeah. in um, not making a national team for five years. And then I was thinking, um, about chatting to you about this and I was thinking about this amazing period of time that we we're in uh, leading into 2000. You know, um, I was broadcasting at that time. There was millions of people tuning in to watch swimming. Uh, anytime it was on TV, they, they just lived and breathed that swimming uh, champions in Australia were, were household names. Um, you know, that must have been phenomenal making that team and the ride that took place in getting ready for Sydney. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, missing 96 by three one hundreds and sitting at home watching the Olympics in, in Atlanta was devastating, like truly mm. devastating. And my, my dad kept telling me like, you got to get a real job. You got to get a real job. And I'm like, this is my real job. Like mm. I'm going to, I'm going to prove to you that I can, I can be an Olympian. And, and for a long period of time and, and, and I kept going back and ma missing Australian teams for a long period of time. I thought it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. But um, something in something clicked in '99 where I, where I was like, you know, I was making excuses. There was there was always an excuse of why it wasn't happening. And in '99, I just said, "Stop the excuses! Like yeah. you're going to make it, and you're going to do it, and 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 there's going to be no reason why you can't do it." And so for a period of about nine months, I was as locked in as anyone could be locked in, and I just left no stone unturned. I hired a a, a private a strength coach who worked with me one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and, and I had, uh, you know, um, Brian Sutton, who was, who was an amazing coach. I, I had him and I was training with Chris Feidler, you know, who was the fastest swimmer in Australia. And I just, I was like, this is it. It's going to happen. So, so when I went to the Olympic trials, I was a hundred percent certain that I was going to, I was going to do it. Like I was like, it's going to happen. So I did it. And then I make the Australian team and I felt, like, I felt like a rookie again. Like I'm on a team with, I mean, I'm on the greatest team of all time for Australia. You know, I'm on yeah. with Kieran Perkins. I'm on with Susie O'Neill. I'm on, I'm on with Ian Thorpe. I'm on with Grant Hackett. I mean, all these, you know, Michael Klim, these, these, these legends. Um, and I just felt like a rookie again. And so uh, it, it was surreal for sure. You know, I hadn't mm. been on an Australian team for five years. And then all of a sudden I'm back on the, the, the greatest team of all time. Um, so leading into it, I got caught up in a little bit, you know, I got caught up in the, the glamour of being on the Australian swim team because we're, we've got the home Olympics. So you know what it's like in Australia. Yeah. Everybody wants a piece of you, you know? So I went to, I was getting invited to functions and yeah, you know, yeah. auctions and, you know, all sorts of just junk. And were, were you going to all of it? Were you yeah, saying I mean, how you're on there? I mean, in a way I felt obliged cause I'm like, I'm on the team. I have to go, you know, like I felt like this is part of being on the team. You got to deal with it. Yeah. So I just didn't know at the time. Like I was like, yeah. you just got to do it. I mean, so I went to all this stuff and I was getting dressed up for things and, and I see the Australian team, like you said, in the past four or five years or whatever, you know, in the past, 
I feel like the Australian team got got lost in, you know, um, putting on this, yeah, putting on this front individualism, and and they got away from what it what it really is, and it's about performance. You know, it's about going there to perform for Australia, and so Mm -hmm. I, I got lost in that a little bit. I went to the Olympic Games and I was completely overwhelmed by the enormity of it. Like I wasn't prepared Mm. for how big this thing was going to be. And when I walked out from my event, I lost my breath. I couldn't breathe. Nicole, I was like, shit, I can't breathe out here. I was like, you know, I walked out to 17,000 people in the stands and everybody just went berserk. And so you felt it when you walked out for your event. That's when Mm. I really, that's when it really hit me. Um, I sat in the stands um, watching you guys. Um, I sat in the stands actually with a beer under my seat thinking, Mm. thank God I'm not doing this (laughs) because it was, you know, a home Olympic Games is like nothing else. Uh, I remember Susie O'Neill coming out for Turner Fly and just, Mm. you know, Susie's a teammate that I've had for such a long time and had relay experience with her and raced against her in the Turner Free and I just remember looking at her and just thinking she's just under pressure. She looked oh, yeah. green around the gills. She mm. just looked like she also couldn't breathe. Yeah. Um, so that, that pressure was enormous. But you banked that experience. What an experience to be able to, to race at a home Olympic Games. You know, so few get to be able to be an Olympian full stop and then to race at a home Olympic Games. You, you bank that experience any, any day of the week. Yeah. And I, and I felt like I was prepared physically. I don't feel like I was prepared mentally. And so that's where I really, when I started coaching, that, mm. that was the game changer for me. Yeah. I wanted to be the person that prepared my athletes mentally for what they're yeah. about to walk into. And I wanted them to walk in as a partner, a partnership. Like yeah. I wanted to walk in together. And, and when I walked in, as an Australian 50 freestyler, I kind of felt a little bit isolated. Like, and the 50 itself was not really a respected event at that time. It was kind of like, oh, you know, we've got all these great 1500 freestylers and then yeah, yeah. this 50 is kind of the fun event, you know? So yeah, they're just going to go like have that. a shower. That's their workout. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a little bit like that. Yeah. So the, the sprinting wasn't fully respected at that time. It, it's it's yeah. got a lot more respected, obviously, over time. So yeah. there was kind yeah. of a lot going on in Sydney. And I just wasn't fully 100% prepared for it, you know? Isn't it interesting, though, when you think about um, you can be as fit as you want, uh, mm. but if you don't yeah. believe in yourself and if mm. you actually aren't able to um, unpack and get rid of those negative thoughts, then you're done. Oh, Absolutely done. 100%. 100%. And I've seen it so many times. I've seen yeah. the most physically prepared people just get destroyed behind the blocks. Yeah. You know, they're done. You know, you know, there's one race from my career um, that still haunts me uh, and a mate, uh, Greg Eggett, uh, you probably know Greg from yeah. US Swimming. Um, he and the IOC have just launched this new Olympic um, encyclopedia site. Uh, so, you know, he sent it to me to have a look at. So, of course, the first thing I did was Google myself or mm. put my name in there for a search. Uh, and looking at the 200 backstroke in uh, t- in 1996 in Atlanta, and I'd made every Olympic final that I'd ever rocked up for mm. uh, over three Olympic Games, whether it was Turner Free, I made the banana final, um, <laughs> or you know whatever it was, I'd made I'd made a final. And that very last event for me was the 200 back, and I'd won Pan Packs the year before in '95, went 211.2, I think I said that before 211.26. Um, and when I did my backstroke start for the heats of the 200 back, I remember having a moment in my head that I thought, this doesn't feel very good. Oh, my God, I feel like I'm in cement. And it was just that moment. It was that one thought as I broke out of the underwater and I was done. 
the whole race I just felt like I was just crawling and just couldn't get going went to 16 mm. like that was the time I swam when I was 14 yeah. uh, and finished 18th and I look at the I looked at results on this website um, from that 200 back uh, second place was 211.9 I just think oh what a wasted opportunity it was the one that just got away from me and it wasn't that I was unfit it was just I had that moment where my mind just wasn't in it well that's um, it and you can remember that too like you can remember those yeah. thoughts that are going through your head at that time yeah, and, and then beat yourself up for the next 20 years going, why did you think that? Yeah. You know, how could you have, after all this experience, how could you have not had that moment under control? Well, I mean, um, you had the opposite. So you won Olympic medals. What was the time where you felt like you were in most control? What was the swim? Uh, yeah, it was that 92 race. Um, and I know you had Kieran Perkins on recently. So, mm. um, you know, Kieran always had the race that stopped the nation. Mm. Um, the 1500 freestyle, you know, people remember where they were in, in Atlanta when he mm. won from lane number eight. And, um, and the Olympics prior to that in, in 92, where he won by 25 metres and, um, you know, uh, Glenn Hausman finished second to him. Just incredible. But I was actually in the marshalling room waiting to race one event after Kieran in 92. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was intense. You know, you had, um, you had Claudia and Sylvia Pohl um, from Costa Rica who, you know, big, tall girls used to be so aggressive in the marshalling room and come up and stretch and clap their hands right in your face. And, um, you know, it was a really intense period of time. But remember coming out um, and we were late because Kieran had swum so well and, um, you know, there was extra celebrations and he was on pool deck and more interviews and we were sitting there and we were like 20 minutes late to come out. Um, and I just remember feeling so in control at those Olympic Games in 92. I'd had an, an amazing, um, amazing build up to it. Ralph Richards and Bill Nelson were looking after me. So I really believed in myself. Um, and yeah, I'd finished fourth in the 100 back, uh, just missed uh, an Olympic medal in that. And there was no way I was going to miss out on winning an Olympic medal in this turner back. So I just completely backed myself in. It was like it was in slow motion, um, mm. even if in a 53, when things go right, it's in slow motion. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just remember um, being really aware of where I was and what I was doing and um, my underwaters were perfect. I remember looking at the scoreboard as well and being able to lock in on where I was and what my splits were because um, they had scoreboards at both ends. Wow. Um, and uh, knowing that, you know, my last lap was as fast as my first lap in the 200 back. So I came home like a steam train. I always had a good back end. Um, not so much these days, but um, I did have a good back end. Um, and I remember touching the wall and seeing, um, I, you always look for the number first, right? So I saw third, I'd finished third in the 200 back. Um, and it was a 210, 20. Um, so that stood as an Australian record for 16 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, and only the year before, they actually changed the backstroke turns to be roll turns. Uh, before that, it was the touch and pivot turn. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so, and then I think about, you know, they're at 203 now um, for the 200 back, so it really has improved um, over time, and, you know, the girls are doing an amazing job with milking all of the uh, underwater and the technique mm. and everything that they're doing, but that was the moment where everything was completely in control for me. What about you? What was the race that everything was in control, that you were at your best? awesome uh, i love that story by the way um i only have a couple um uh, one of them was when when i won ncaa's as a freshman um i remember looking over it's a funny story and americans will relate to this but there's a swimmer by the name of neil walker and i don't know if you remember mm. neil walker yeah, yeah. But yep. very Absolutely. very famous american sprinter um did, did many great things collegiately and and for the u.s um uh, but 
he had he had swum 19-0 in the 50 uh, in the prelims of, of 90, 97 NCAAs. And, and, and my time leading in, going into this was 19-6. And he, he was in the heat before me. And he went 19-0 right in front of me. Like, I'm in lane four, about to get up for the next heat, the last heat. And he drops a 19-0. No one's ever broken 19 seconds in the 50 before. And this guy goes 19-0 something. And I just remember thinking to myself, holy shit, that's fast, you know? I was like, wow, he looks so good. And so I get up in the next heat and I drop a 19-1. And I think to myself, oh, that's, that's pretty good. I'm competitive. Okay. So, so the, the nighttime... Um, he's in lane four and I'm in lane five and they introduce us and the whole pool deck is waiting for this guy to break 19 seconds. You know, like they're, they're on pins and needles, just like, this is going to be the first American. This is going to be the first person to break 19 seconds. And I remember the whole pool deck just closing in on him. And I looked over to him as they introduced him and I thought to myself, he's pissing his pants. You know, like, like, wow, like he's really nervous, you know, cause I would be too, if the whole pool deck's yeah. looking at me and I'm over here and my, my, my teammates are like, you got this bread, you got this. So they're, they're all fired up, but everybody else is looking at him. And I thought to myself, he's done. I, I, I got this guy, you know? So I get up on the block and I just swim and I'm, I'm feeling amazing. And I touch the wall and I go 19, one again, you know, it's basically the same time I did in the morning, but he goes 19, two. And I, and I win, you know, so as a freshman, I, I win the national championship for the first time. So that was one of those races where everything just clicked. And I thought to myself, and, and again, it's that mental thing, you know, mm. when the pressure is on and you have to perform, it can change people, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so when that, that expectation is there, it really changes your performance. So I didn't get, I didn't win because I was the better swimmer. I, I won because I swam the better race, you know? Yeah. And, and that was it. So that was, that was one of those moments. And then um, the, the other moment that I remember just where it was just so effortless, where everything just clicked was in 2004 at the Olympic Games. I broke the Australian record. It was actually in the semifinal. I qualified, I qualified second fastest for the final. So I qualified for lane five again in the final. But the semifinal, I remember thinking to myself, Brett, um, you know, you, made, you, you got knocked out in the semis in the, in the 2000 Olympics. You're at the Olympics again. Just just go and swim. Who, who cares what happens? You know, I remember just thinking, who cares what happens? You know, and, and I just got up on the block and I just swam this beautiful race. I swam faster than I'd ever swam, 22-0, and broke the Australian record. And I just remember looking back and thinking, shit, how did I just do that? That, was, yeah. that felt so good. You know, yeah. so sometimes when you just turn your brain off, you have the best swims. You just let yeah. it go. And that, that was, you know, my advice as a coach is just turn your brain off. Let, let yeah. it flow, you know, because that, that were the best swims I ever had. What about, um, because you talked about Neil Walker and being able to see in his eyes that you mm. had him at that NC2A final. Yeah. yeah. What about as a coach? Do you see in your athletes those that have it and those that don't? And, and if they have it from an ability and a, te- a technique and a talent point of view, of view at race time, can you see when they're on and they're going to do it and when they're maybe just not quite there and they're not going to do it? And you still got to put the poker face on and not tell them that you know that. Yeah. No, you can. It's a great question, by the way. You can. And, um, and I didn't know this as a swimmer. I didn't know that the body language that you were giving off was giving off signals. 
you know, as a yeah. swimmer, I was, I was, I was thought I had this poker face and no one can read me. And then as a coach, I'm like, I can read all of you. Like you, you're telling me everything that's going to happen right before you swim. So mm-hmm. I knew those athletes and you, and you would see these athletes that would have amazing practices that would, that would be incredible in practice. And then mm-hmm. they'd go to a meet. And as soon as the spotlight was on them, they'd freeze. And you just think to yourself, why are you doing that? Like, I just saw you do something in practice that, and then you'd have other people that were decent in practice, but as soon as the spotlight was on them, they become a different person. Yeah. And that was, that was Caesar Cielo. Yeah. Caesar Cielo was a different animal. When you put the spotlight on him, it was like, that's what he needed. You know, like Mm. he needed the spotlight to be at his best. And I, and I remember having some of the worst warmups with him. I remember having some of the worst practices but there was never a time where I coached him where the spotlight was on him, where he wasn't ready to perform. He found yeah. a way every single time to, uh, to tell me that he was, he was the best in the world right before he did it. And sometimes he would even do this at, at NCAAs and at the world championships, right before he broke the world record, he would write on a piece of paper, the time that he was going to swim, he'd wow. fold it up and he'd say to me, open this at the end of the swim. So when he broke the world record in the 100 freestyle at the, at, in Rome in 2009, he folded up a piece of paper and he said to me, 46.91. And he's like, open this at the end of the, uh, end of the race. So he swam and then he came to me and he said, did you open that piece of paper? And I was like, oh no, I forgot. I opened it up. It said 46.91. Like he wow. knew exactly to the hundredth i mean did you, do any work on, did you do any work on that because that was the thing that i learned the most from gennady um when i was mm. training with alex popov mm. um, and it was actually about being in sync with your pacing whether it was fast or whether it was slow so we did a lot of work with gennady on going as slow as you could mm. um with minimal stroke rate uh, or stroke count and and him saying tell me what time and you know it's hard to know with Gennady maybe it was a bit of bluff every now and again but you know Alex would get it every time whether it was fast or slow he would be within a couple of hundredths of a second of knowing exactly what time he swam did you do a lot of work with your athletes on on just that intrinsic knowledge of how fast you were actually going yeah look honestly i hated gennady Turetsky and i hated alex popov because they were so good and they just knew what they were doing <laughs> and and the sprinter in me you know like the competitive ego yeah. kind of eccentric you know that that guy that wants to be the best and i hated them and but i learned so much from them honestly I actually mm-hmm. almost i almost had a fight with michael Klim over this you know i was i was i was talking badly about gennady one day and michael said did you ever think that maybe he was doing that because he saw something in you, you know? Mm. And so me and him actually almost got into a fist fight over Gennady Turetsky. I've never told yeah. anybody that. Uh, and Michael, Michael's probably laughing, listening to this right he now. Won. <laughs> Michael would have beat the hell out of me, <laughs> <laughs> but I would have acted like I could have beat him. But, um, but you know, we almost got into it and, and, um, but Gennady was a brilliant coach and, and I can understand why you would say that about him. He, he was brilliant. I learned a lot from him and, and yes, I did do that. You know, I, I learned mm-hmm. that swimming fast and understand, understanding all your speeds was important. Understand when you're swimming slow and what that feels like and, and, and what time are you actually going? It's like a car, you know, when you're, when you're in a car and the car has got that, that, um, digital, um, you know, uh, what do they call that in the car? Like the rev meter, the tack tack on. Yeah, 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 yeah. When it's telling you exactly how fast you're going, when you pay attention to that, you get a feel for it. Because otherwise, you're not going to know if you're speeding or not, and you're going to get a fine. But yeah. you know what 45 feels like, or yeah. 
you know, kilometers. I'm trying to think. I'm thinking miles per hour now. Yeah. But um, you yeah. know, you know what, you know what the speed in the car feels like, and that's what it is in swimming. You do the same thing, and I wanted my athletes to fully understand what is slow swimming, what is fast swimming. And I wanted them, when we were going fast, I wanted them to know to the hundredth of a second. Mm. So we would do a lot of stuff in practice where I would say the same thing, like how fast was that? And they would have to say 10.31. They wouldn't just say 10.3, they'd say 10.31. So I wanted them to know to the hundredth of a second what it felt like. So yes, I I did a lot of that stuff. Cesar Cielo, what a great athlete. Yeah, yeah, incredible athlete, you know. But, um, you know, in terms of... uh, influences uh on you who were some of the athletes that had influence on you um i mean from an idolization point of view again seeing john o'seven and being on teams with him um being on teams with you know i wish i hadn't been on a team with lisa forrest she was my absolute idol growing up Mm. um but you know the other backstrokers that i was around um georgie parks who was the original backstroker when i first started she was the number one she'd just been to la as well um so a lot of those older athletes i had great influence on me it's really interesting in thinking about um you know because i've been retired so long now i'm thinking about the influence and the impact that swimming has on your life Mm. um and it is more than just about winning medals and doing best times i mean the things that your coaches and that your um your friends and peers influence you in and they influence you for the rest of your life um you know i see the way that i even operate now as as um, a worker or as a parent uh, and a lot of that's been influenced on on the way that I've been brought up through swimming um, my best friend still to this day um, is you know Lindley Frame we went to mm. primary school together oh, really? um, we still speak nearly every day mm. um, and she's still my best friend we were in relays together we won world championship medals together uh, and the other one's Dan Kowalski so mm. um, you know it's not always for me about winning gold medals or doing personal best or breaking records. It's also about the, the struggle and, and the perseverance and the success that people have in their lives. Um, you know, late, later and, and more often I look at Dan and the success that he's had and, and the comfortability of who he is and mm. um, being able to be who he is and influencing the whole Olympic team now and his job with the Australian Olympic Committee. He, he is an incredible role model. Um, so, you know, those influences still to this day are around me all the time. Um, but, you know, plenty of teammates who I um, didn't get on with, plenty of teammates who I adored and, and would die in a ditch for them. Um, and, you know, they're still my best mates. How did you make the decision that you wanted to go to three Olympics? Because back then you didn't make money necessarily. So it must have been yeah. tough to say, I want to be, you know, be a three-time Olympian. Yeah, and, and, and um, most people only went to one, if not two. Uh, yeah. So there wasn't too many that had been to three Olympic Games. Um, mm. I just knew that uh, I'd be a long time retired and mm. I'd seen a lot of athletes stop probably too early. Uh, and, and I wanted to make sure that I'd given it everything that I could. It helped me that I had a job uh, and was supported um, by Australia Post during that four-year period to be able to work. So I worked 10 till 3. So I was able to do my morning workout and um, do my afternoon workout and and not be compromised, but then also be able to go off and do, um, you know, the training camps that we used to do, the altitude camps that we used to do. Um, So if I didn't have that job, um, then I probably, you know, I started broadcasting as well. I I probably wouldn't have kept going. Um, Mm. It would have been too difficult. Uh, I look at athletes now and, um, you know, Australian athletes are, are, swimmers are very well supported Mm. um, not only from a government point of view Uh, i mean it hasn't got 
bigger amounts of money really uh, from a government point of view it's, it's probably held um, if not dropped a little bit past Sydney. Sydney was a bit of a false economy for the whole sport but um, you know they're supported well enough to be able to make ends meet they're not going to make money out of it unless you're you know a Kate Campbell or some of those bigger name athletes um, but you know you're fortunate if you can do your sport and you are able to to make ends meet and able to make a choice of whether or not you have protein or whether or not you're having two minute noodles. Uh, I don't think swimming is a sport that you should get into it thinking that you're going to make money. I think mm. that's a, a massive mistake. Mm. When did you stop the broadcasting because you were, and why did you stop the broadcasting? Because you're so freaking good at it. Why, why, <laughs> why'd you stop? Uh, um, so I stopped broadcasting, uh, I mean, I've done the Olympics, so I've done Olympics and Commonwealth Games for the host yeah, broadcaster. That's true. Um, but I stopped, uh, when it went to a new network. So I was working with channel 10 as well. Then it went across to another network and, oh, okay. um, to be, to be really honest with you, and I don't know whether or not you want to hear this. I do. Um, so my management company got in touch, um, with, the broadcaster about whether or not they are in, were interested in me. Um, and at that stage, I reckon I was maybe 40, 42 or 43. Uh, and I was told that they were looking for someone fresher and newer. So they were going to screen test some younger girls. Oh my God. So, so, you know, it's the difference. I mean, and we are seeing more women um, of older age on, on TV in Australia. And I reckon America does it really well. You know, um, females are involved, um, you know, in, in sports broadcast. Uh, it doesn't matter what age they are, but they're also um, integrated into broadcast really well. I look at Major League Baseball, I look at the NFL. I mean, mm. they really respect female journalists. Oh, yeah. Female sportscasters. Um, but we're st- we are still in an age where, I don't know, the, the old guys get um, wise and revered and, um, you know, well-respected, whereas the women, it's looking for someone fresher. So that's kind of where it ended. And, and I could see that was happening anyway, Hawkey. So I'm, I'm smart enough and cunning enough that I knew that it was coming. So I started to move into sports administration. Um, so, yeah, moved into looking after Melbourne Vic Centre, uh, which I know is a club that you know, uh, based mm. at the Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre. So I was CEO there for about four years, looking after all of their programming and, and saw that through um, Rio. Um, so obviously we had Mac that was racing in Rio and then we had um, some athletes that were, were there also for the Paralympic Games like Ahmed Kelly um, and Monique Murphy. So I saw that through and then um, yeah, moved into the AFL, which was pretty cool. Mm, very cool. All right. Ask me a question. Go for it. Um, do you miss coaching? Uh, do I miss coaching? Um, yeah. You know, I was burnt out, you know, like I went hard in the paint, as they say in America, you know, like I went, I went full fledged and I didn't ever want to be a coach. Like coaching was not in my, my um, future, you know, like I actually, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually just came back to America to finish my degree because I, I yeah. had something that was hanging over my head. You know, when I went back to make the Olympic team, I told David Marsh that I'm leaving school and then I swam for Australia for seven years. But at the end of that, I thought to myself, like, I hate not finishing things. And I thought, well, Mm. I need to finish this degree. So I asked David, I reached back out to him. He was still the head coach at Auburn. I said, could I just come back and finish? Is there a way that the university could help me out? He said, yeah, we have a program where, you know, former athletes come back and we put them on full scholarship and we help them finish their degree. It's like, great, let's do it. So I came back and within the first 
week or so, uh, one of the assistant coaches, one of the primary assistant coaches for David, uh, got cancer and, and he had to, he had to step down and, uh, and, and look after himself. His name was Ralph Crocker, great coach, beautiful man. And, um, and so David just said, look, could you help me out for the summer while I find an assistant coach? You know, I know you're going to school, but just come in in the afternoon and help me out. I was like, okay, great. So I, I started, I, I went down there and, and, he, and he just said, look, I, I've got some athletes that are, I'm struggling to work with. I need you to kind of just connect with them and, and work with them over the summer. So he gave me a group of like 10 athletes and, and basically said, do what you want with them. Mm. And one of them was Cesar Cielo. I just, I just happened to, to get him in my group. And, and so I just thought to myself, well, if I'm going to coach, I'm just going to coach. I'm going to have fun. Yeah. So I started, started coaching and, um, and they all swam best times at the end of the summer. And, and he just said at the end of the summer, like, why don't you just join me and, uh, okay. and, and finish your degree part-time instead of full-time. So that's how I became a coach. And, and that was I, in 2007, right? That, that was actually that was, 2006, 2006. Six, right, okay. Yeah. Cause I, I went from the Melbourne Commonwealth games yep. straight back to Auburn a month later yeah, right. and started school. And did uh, you have, did you even have your coaching accreditation at that stage or did you have to quickly? I didn't have get... anything. And, and actually when he, <laughs> when he offered me the job, they said to me, you know, we can't hire any assistants that don't have their college degree. But they were like, we'll make an exception for you because if you're, if you're, if you're in the process of finishing your degree, then we'll, we'll be okay. So I was actually going to school with the athletes that I was coaching mm. and going to school with them. So I'd coach them in the morning and then we'd go to English class together, you know, or economics class together, you know. So, so I was actually going to class with my athletes. It was, it was a crazy situation. Um, and I did you're going to hate quick. me because you're going to have to do an edit on this because I need to get a battery. I need to get plug my computer in. You need it's to about wait. To die. I'm so sorry. Huh? It's about to die, is it? It is about to die. And I'm really sorry that you're going to have to do an edit. Go get it. Don't worry and, about it. And, and even more sorry that I have to stand up so you have to see my butt. Hang on. Go get it. Do it. It's all good. I'm not going to edit this, by the way. We're going to keep it the way it is. I've got a follow up question for you as well. So hang on. <laughs> Okay. All right, you're back. You good? Yeah, I'm back. Hi, sorry. Um, so, so you get that opportunity, and then David Marsh goes right, and Richard yeah. Quick comes mm. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go. You good? Great you're, Richard you're good. Quick. Yeah, Richard Quick was phenomenal. David David's phenomenal, but Richard Quick was yeah. phenomenal. He'd come from Stanford Women, and he coached there for 27 years. So he yeah. never coached men before, and. Um, and, and he said to me, Brett, I'm going to keep you on. You know, David says great things about you. He took me to lunch a few times. We got to know each other and we just hit it off. We clicked, you know, our personalities were, were perfect for each other. Um, and uh, he said, look, I hadn't coached men in, in many, many years. So I need your help. So he trusted me a lot. He's like, look, you're having success with the men. I want you to stay there. I want you to keep doing what you're doing. So, so he kept me with Cesar Cielo. He didn't take Cesar from me. He's like, Cesar's yeah. yours. So, um, you know, he came in in 2007 in 2008, Caesar won the Olympic gold medal, you know, working with me. Um, but obviously ha had a lot of influence with Richard as well. So, yeah, it was, it was just a crazy time. 2009, he breaks the world record in the 50 and the 100 freestyle. Um, you know, I had many great athletes at the time. Uh, 2009 World Championships, I, I think we won, you know, something like 20 medals. You know, people that were swimming with our group. It was something that phenomenal. Was 
Yeah, it was insane. So, and then, you know, the group, it was huge. And, you know, 2012, we did well, 2016. So, you know, I became head coach after Richard passed away in 2009. I became the head coach of Auburn. So my my life changed completely. Just just stop for a second. So within three years of retiring, you are head coach of a a Div 1 school with a stable of athletes that are just world leaders. Yes, but here's the, other, here's the other thing that you're missing, okay? I graduate in 2010. I, gra- <laughs> I graduated in 20. So not only was I the head coach, and also my twins were born in 2008. So I'm the head coach of Auburn. I have four children, and I'm going to school with the kids that are in my program. Like, it was, it was madness. It was madness. Incredible. It was madness. So um, I, I, I have Aaron Charla people like uh, people who helped me out through, through my college degree. Um, but uh, it, it was madness. Yeah. It was a crazy time in my life. It was too much too soon, but I learned a lot. Have you, know? have you um, Craig Jackson once told me a story about an athlete when he was in South Africa where nobody wanted to take him on. Um, and Craig ended up taking this athlete on and he ended up going across to America and getting a, a college uh, scholarship and ended up getting a degree and um, has been really successful, this swimmer, um, post-swimming life. Uh, and, and it's one of the things that Craig's most proud of, his influence on this young man to be able to believe in himself, take him on and then pass him on to bigger and better things. I know you've had great success with athletes um, in the pool, but are there some athletes that you think about that you've been instrumental in, in actually helping them be great people and going on to do some really amazing things. There must yeah, be, you know, yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if I was instrumental, but there are great people. There, there are incredible people that, um, you know, there, there's a guy that ended up, uh, his name is Jordan Anderson. He, he graduated from uh, Harvard. He also went, he, he won the road scholarship when I was mm. coaching, um, and and he's gone on to become um, a, a world leader in as as a doctor. But uh, you know there there are incredible stories like that where you, you know you have so many athletes come through your program and people that do some incredible things, and you don't know what kind of influence you have on them. You just know that you're part of the story. But um, yeah, but but you know I don't know I don't know if you're like this, but I remember the people that I had the hardest time with, like the people that I failed with, like for some reason I hang on to that stuff a lot. Like the successes you're like, Oh great. You, you know, you're successful, but the people you struggle with, like I hang on to those people for some reason, like the people that failed, the people that didn't do best times, the people that didn't, didn't get their degree or, you know, for whatever reason, struggled through college. Like I remember some of those painful moments the most, I don't know why I hang on to that stuff, but you know, you remember your failures a lot. And, I, and maybe, maybe I did that as an athlete too. Like the, mm-hmm. the stuff that um, spurred me on to bigger and better things. Like, you know, the stuff that drove me, the failures, you know. And, and I, but, I but I reckon you would reflect on some of those, what you call failures and not being able to get to where you wanted to with the athletes that you had. Yeah. Um, you, you would have mulled over in your head on how you could have done things differently you take that to the next athlete mm, yeah um so i reckon and that's the way you were as an athlete as well yeah yeah for sure for sure you know i, I think I, I i'm sure you were the same way as an athlete is that you take you, you don't quit you know like I, I i noticed when i went back to talk to my high school in uh in 2000 they asked me to come back because i i'd um 
you know, I'd finished high school in 1992 and I was an Olympian in 2000. So there was eight years that passed. They asked me to come back and talk about high school. And a lot of the teachers were like, how did you make the Olympic team? We thought it was going to be this person or that person. Cause a lot of the yeah. teachers were still there. And I just said, I didn't, I just didn't quit. You know, like I don't have quit in me, you know, I, I fail, but I don't quit. And that's kind of the way I am with a lot of things. And, and I'm sure you're, you know, successful people tend to be that yeah. way. They, they just don't quit when they, when something comes up in your life, you, you find a way around it, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's about work ethic as well. Um, so what I haven't told you is that, um, I've, uh, just had both my knees partially replaced three weeks ago. Yeah. Did both of them at once. What? Like why? Like what happened? Um, yeah, exactly. It should be breaststrokers that get bad knees, right? (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think um, I, I was always a heavier athlete, so I always did a lot of dry land. Mm. We did so much dry land. I mean, you did it as well. Yeah. Um, so whether whether it was a little that, little genetics, um, I had some meniscus repairs and um, they didn't go so great. So six years down the track, I've um, had both of them replaced. Uh, and the reason I tell you that is because now 20 plus years after retiring from, from swimming, I often think, how did I do what I did? How did we do? I mean, some of those training camps, I remember Sierra, Sierra Nevada in Spain hmm. and doing a training camp with Gennady where we were swimming three times a day. We were doing dry land every day. Um, we were walking to and from the swimming complex three times a day. So it ended up being like seven, seven kilometers of walking a day. Um, and I often think, how did I do that? You know, how did I actually commit myself and, um, and be able to do that? But now I'm having to rehab um, both these knees. Uh, you know, I, I remember that work ethic and I remember the discipline and, mm. and, you know, so on the spin bike twice a day, walking, doing all of the rehab exercises, which take a huge amount of time, you know, so I'm actually clicked back into to that athlete mode, yeah. which is a bit bizarre so it doesn't leave you it doesn't leave you it's the lifelong lessons sometimes you just need to actually find your motivation to to regain it wow awesome incredible holy hell so you had the knees replaced how long was the operations um three and a half hours i think or three hours just just both at once both at once so they're only partial so it's the Mm. medial the inside Uh part of the knee um the outside part was fine okay Um, so i have to get back in the pool Wow, good. That's good stuff. I'm not going to make a comeback for Masters, though. <laughs> no. Hey, um, I want to ask you about the current state of swimming. No, um, uh, no, I don't care about the current state of swimming. I care about oh, you. No. <laughs> no, no, I do. What, what about the current state of swimming? Well, I was going to ask you. I mean, if if what do you think? Do you think Tokyo 2021 is going to going to happen? Um, you know. If it doesn't happen, I think about 1980 uh, and I think about those athletes that have struggled for the rest of their lives, not being able to, to go to an Olympic Games. Um, what do you reckon? Do you reckon it's going to happen? Yeah, Crystal I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a fair question. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, yeah, I'm, I see, I see, I don't know what it's like around the rest of the world. I just, I just read things and I see things, but I know what it's like in America and like, California's completely shut down. Like pools aren't even open up. So it's like, yeah. I don't know where it's going. And, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know where, I don't know what the future looks like for us. I know yeah. that, I know that it's not as bad as it was two months ago, but it's still, they're still talking, you know, about not going back to school even, you know, like yeah. for my, for my kids. So uh, it's, it's a very strange time. And um, if I was a betting man, I would probably say that the Olympics aren't going to happen. You know, I, I hate being like that, but 
Um, well, it's even thinking about how you hold trials and all those kind of things. Yeah. Teams. Yeah. I mean, we're just uh, like, there's, there's nobody doing anything. Now it's encouraging to see um, sporting, you know, organizations all opening back up like the UFC. I like the UFC and they're, and they're fighting right mm. now, but you know, I've heard, Baseball's going to come back and, and basketball's going to come back and things yeah, like Aussie, that. Aussie rules football starts next weekend. So it's yeah. coming back. So I'm hoping that, you know, swimmers get that chance too. Like, why don't we open pools up, you know, like all over the country? So I'm hoping. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one, of the, one of the ideas um, which Andy Balden, uh, who I'm on the, the Swimming Australia board with, uh, Andy Balden was the first, as you know, the first Australian man to break 50 seconds for the 100 freestyle. Mm. Uh, and he now runs for swim schools. He said, you know, if every swim school provider... Um, opened up their pool to even one athlete uh, to be yeah. able to just go in and train with their one coach. Yeah. Uh, where where I live, we're now in the situation where you can have um, twenty people in the in the pool. Yeah. Um, so where my daughter trains, um, they have it's a six lane pool, so they have three per lane, and they actually stagger them. I was watching some vision of it. So um, starting at the the start end, the turn end, and in the middle, um, yeah. so that they're actually socially distancing. So there are some ways yeah. around it. No, that's how we're doing swim camps right now. I work for a company, Fitter and Faster Swim Clinics, and that we've started swim clinics, and, and that's how we're doing it. You know, same thing. Yeah. One person in the middle, uh, you know, two at either end and that sort of stuff. So it, it, it can happen. It works, and it's fine. People respect it, and it works really well. So uh, we need to get back in the pools, definitely, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So. and we need people to be actually advocating for swimming around the world um, mm. to actually be able to have pools opened up. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if you get the chance to advocate, make sure you do. I will. Now, listen, my question to you is this, you know, it's, it's easy to get male athletes to come on here and talk. And what I've found I've struggled with is that um, I've I've found that females are a little, a little more reluctant to kind of open up and talk and be honest. Mm. And, and, And that's really why I wanted you to be on this because I know that you're, 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 you're an open book and you're, you're okay with who you are and what you've done. And, and so, um, you know, my, my question to you is this, is in terms of being a role model for females and, and, and male athletes and, 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 and female athletes and uh, female swimmers, you know, what would your advice be to them? You yeah. Know, younger generation. Yeah, it's interesting because I did note, uh, notice that you had um, more males than females coming on to chat. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think as a sport, um, and I don't want to generalise, um, but I think a lot of us are a bit beaten up by by the experience that we had at the time. Um, you know, if they're athletes of my era or before, um, coaches spent a lot of time, um, you know, trying to put round round pegs into square holes. Uh, you know, we were always told that we needed to look a particular way, we needed to be a particular way. Um, in my generation, you know, it was the East Germans. <laughs> Our coaches would see the East Germans and the way they looked and the way they swam and, um, you know, they they spent the rest of time telling us that we needed to lose weight or we needed to, you know, build up bulk or, you know, again, and we have this conversation about how to get the best out of athletes and if they believe in themselves and, you know, they, they've got a baseline of work and they've done a pretty good job with that, you know, the athlete that believes in themselves will win every time. Um, so I reckon the generation of my generation and, and maybe the generation after that is a little uh, beaten and battered up. Um, 
by body image, um, to be honest, mm. um, rather than just letting our athletes be the best they can. You know, I even, I, you know, in the football world that I live in, I've, I've heard people say, oh, you know, but if she just got a little bit better shape or if she was just in, you know, if she lost a bit of weight. And, and I often say to them, you know, you actually just got to let them be who they are. Um, you know, within reason, you, you do want to mm, make sure yeah. sports science works for you. Yeah. Um, but the amount of male coaches that have handled um, body image um, and weight issues for female swimmers badly, um, it's, it's just too much. There's too many of them that have handled it badly uh, and has left, left us all kind of scarred. Why were you always so confident? Because when I walked into a room, I, I was immediately drawn to you and your confidence yeah. and your leadership. Yeah. Like why, why were you always like that? Um, I probably just the coaches that I had around me, my personal coaches that, um, you know, had me believe in myself, you know, but I had, I remember 1988 at those Olympic games in Seoul. Um, you know, I went in ranked in the top few of the world and yeah, you had to come up against the might of the Eastern Bloc. But, you know, I, I felt like I had a, a good opportunity to do well. But Bill Sweetnam actually spoke to the media uh, after my 100 backstroke heat um, and he was asked, you know, why didn't she, why didn't she do better <laughs> in, after the heat? And I think I qualified in lane two or lane seven of an Olympic final. Mm. Um, and, and Bill's comment was something like, well, she's got an, she's got an anchor on her butt. So oh. that's why she didn't do very, and he said that to the media, <laughs> you know, that was in the first couple of years of being on the national team. So, you know, as a 17 year old athlete, how do you actually get past that? Mm. Um, but then to have people like Ralph and Bill and, and, and then even Gennady um, instill belief in, in you and find ways to actually have you fit and, and ready to go rather than focusing on, on the scales. I remember um, in 88 as well, um, we, we had a camp in Boca Raton in Florida and we were all getting our skin folds done. Um, and if you had a skin fold that was over 75 mils um, for the seven sites, you were in Laurie's fat club, you're in Laurie Lawrence's running club. Mm. Uh, and, and it was to the point that, you know, you're sitting in a room with the national swimming team of 30 plus athletes and, you know, the call would come out, right, who's in Laurie's fat club? Put your hands up, off you go, go run. Oh, God. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. So, so I mean, I think some of those experiences, you know, have, have left us a little um, gun shy with talking about experiences, to be really honest. Um, so what, so but what would think, be your message then to yeah. young women now then? Well, I mean, my message to the swimmers of my era and, and the past eras that you're trying to get on to talk to, I reckon honesty and experience helps a future generation. Um, you know, we're living in an environment now where people are actually trying to change the world. Um, so let's change our own patch as well by talking about our experiences. I think it's really important. Um, you know, I think my advice probably wouldn't be to the female swimmers. My advice would be to those coaches and and um, our industry, the majority of coaches are men. Um, it, we haven't really, uh, Janelle Elford, there's, you know, um, Terry McKeever, there's quite a few wonderful female coaches out there, but the majority are still men. Mm. Um, and so the way that we speak to female athletes, the way that we interact with female athletes has to be different to the way that we deal with male athletes. Uh, and that's not to say that male athletes don't have body image or, or issues as well, but, um, you know, a woman will will process things and it will spin around in their head. And my husband often calls me an elephant because I never forget things. And I always 
dot them together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, my advice is to the coaches is don't just speak without thinking. Actually, you know, think about the way that you interact with female athletes uh, about all aspects of their life, um, including uh, weight and the optimal weight that you're looking for for performance. Uh, I think that's really important to think about the way that you you are interacting with your female athletes. Yeah, that's good advice. And you know, men uh, don't get it right a lot. You know, they, they do mess that up. But um, you know, I, it's I appreciate. It's the Mars Venus thing. We'll yeah. Forgive you. Yeah. So who should I talk to next in terms of a female? Who, who should I, who should I bring on the show? I reckon, um, I reckon, have you tried Susie? Susie would be amazing. I actually tried. I sent her a direct message on Instagram. She, she never replied to me. So if you, if you know yeah. her number, share it with me. Yeah. yeah. I'll, um, I'll, I'll put a good word in for Susie. I reckon yeah. someone like Janelle Pallister would be really great yeah, as well. So yeah. mm-hmm. um, coaching Lani, uh, who's doing remarkable things uh, in swimming and um, Janelle cracking it onto the national team. And, you know, there's, there's Janelle there's, and I swam together when we were younger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, or Janelle and I swam together as well at the Olympic Games. So we had some incredible experiences and, um, you know, she, she battled it out with Janet Evans. So um, now to see Lani and and that mother daughter uh, coaching experience, that must be wild because I can't get my kids to listen to anything I say. Yeah, yeah, that'll be, that, that's a cool one, actually. I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll make a sure. list for you, though, Hawkey. I'll make a list and I'll, yeah. um, I'll act as your agent. I'll start calling people for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, listen, you got a daughter that's, uh, you know, a swimmer and that must be pretty cool, right? Yeah, she, um, on purpose, she started quite late um, and that's because her mother wouldn't allow her to start early. Um, so she started just before 12 in squad uh prior to that she was just doing mini squad and in fact um olympian toby hainan and olympian andrew lauderstein were her two coaches as as young kids um and then she's uh now in the safe hands of jason cooper who i raced with uh on the australian team mm. as well um god bless jason cooper he picks her up every morning so i don't have to get up at 4 30. that's nice very nice i know um so yeah she's finishing up year 12 and um she she's thinks she's a breaststroker she wants to be like arnie limley um but i reckon she'll make a great i am her butterfly is wonderful i can't get her to be a backstroker um i think it's a bit of a you know what you Mm. anyway but i keep telling her that breaststroke will make great i am um but she's interested in coming across to college and um, she's only doing six, seven sessions a week at the moment. And that's because I don't want her to be burnt out. She works a part-time job. Um, you know, she babysits on the street wow. <laughs> for various, various families. So um, she, she's actually living a fairly holistic life. Um, and then when she gets across to the States, if she gets across there, you know, she's going to give it everything she's got. So she's yeah. a great student as well. Um, and a son that wants to be a baseballer and come across to the States as well. Interesting to see the COVID um, situation and how that impacts uh, college for prospects um, for 2021. Mm. Uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah we're, working, we're navigating our way through that right now, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's a little bit of a mess. I don't know where, where it's going to end up in terms of college. I've got a lot, I've got a lot of people that, that I know that are, that are hanging out for answers on that one. So it's yeah. affecting everybody. So, um, But listen, uh, I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Hawkey. Great to yeah. chat. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll do it again sometime, all right? Yep, perfect. All right, take care. See you, Nick. See you, mate. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye.